May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. The author, composer, and comedian Oscar Levant once said, what the world needs is more geniuses with humility, since there are so few of us left. (laughs) Or maybe you remember the late great co-host of NPR's talk, uh, Car Talk, uh, Tom Magliosi, who said, it is our humility that makes us great. You know, humility can be sort of like that pea that you can't quite cut with your knife. It's, you know, because once you've got it, or once you think you've got it, then you don't have it, right? That's what about humility. Um, I, heard, I asked somebody uh, once how they, uh, how they were doing on their humility, and they said, well, you know I can't comment on that. You know, that's... Um, <laughs> it is humility, however, which Jesus is driving us to uh, in this parable from Luke chapter 18. We've had a stewardship series called I Love to Tell the Story. Well, Jesus loves to tell stories, too. Uh, One of his favorite teaching techniques is to tell stories, to tell parables. And some are descriptive uh, parables that say the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells whatever that parable describes. Uh, but, But some of them are, some parables are more like riddles. You know, they, uh, these are riddles, and they're intended to turn our assumptions on their ear. And this parable is like that. So Luke gives us some preliminary information about the parable. He says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others or regarded others with contempt. So Jesus is telling this story with a particular target audience in mind. And you and I have to decide whether or not this parable has us in its sights. So he's talking to religious people. uh, Religious people who are impressed with themselves. Who are convinced that their good deeds have qualified them for God's applause. They sort of carry a resume around with them, figuratively speaking. Uh, They see themselves on a sort of moral pedestal, and they assume that God is surely as impressed with them as they are with themselves. Now, they're religiously self-aware, so if you asked them about that moral pedestal or that um, lofty status for themselves, they they would deny it right away. But the tell, the, uh, the dead giveaway, is that they look down on others. They treat others with contempt. Others who don't seem to have worked quite as hard as they have, or don't seem to have achieved such religious acumen or accolades. So is that you? Is that me? So two men walk into Church of Our Savior. The first is a regular. He's been a member of several churches during his life, and every stop along the way, he has been a, a, a prominent leader uh, in that church. He has served on boards and committees, and uh, he is a 
committed and earnest believer. He's a man that the rector regularly relies on. Uh, a man that is relied on not just for leadership, not just for wisdom and perspective, but in a pinch sometimes for generosity. And the man has been unfailingly willing uh, to come through. In fact, if all members were like this man, we wouldn't even have to have an annual stewardship campaign. Uh, he is a model member, or so it seems, right? The man walks in, he walks past this newcomer that just looks a mess, this terribly out of place. Uh, doesn't think much about that newcomer. The man takes his regular seat up here uh, on the front pew. I'm really glad nobody's sitting in the front pew today. And <laughs> as he comes to the front pew, the, um, uh, he ta- his striking frame is noticed by everyone else who has arrived early because he's so thin. And he's thin because he fasts. Uh, not just at Lent and not just chocolate, but he actually twice a week, every week, he replaces his food with prayer. And the guy is earnest. He's come in before the service again several minutes early to the church uh, to, just to have some time to pray. And he addresses God with a, sort of a great display of emotion. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I mean, God, the world is, is down the tubes, uh, it seems, Lord, and I thank you that you have kept me and preserved me, that I am not down the tubes. Those, I watch the news, I read the paper, I look in uh, my neighborhood even, I see people who are thieves and rogues, uh, extortioners, they're, they're running around on their wives like it's nothing, Lord. You know, like that newcomer I noticed when I came in. Uh, just all out of sorts, weeping with his problems. Bless his heart. And I know, God, that there but for your grace go I. My faith has really changed me, God. I, I fast twice a week. I tithe, and, and it's, it's, it's really my joy. It's not just on my income, but, but on everything I have. And so I, I thank you, God, for what you have made me. Meanwhile, in the back pew is this, this out-of-sorts newcomer, this man who was brushed by without much of a thought by the regular. Uh, his, the man's wealth is evident. His designer labels are uh, prominently but tastefully displayed. There's a cloud of expensive cologne wafting around him, not quite hiding the whiskey from last night. And he's clearly upset Because of his blubbering, the congregation has given him some space, and that's just fine with him. He looks out of place because he is. He can't remember the last time he darkened the door of a church. In the parable that Jesus tells, he's a tax collector. He collects money for the Roman government door to door, and he has the freedom, however, to charge his own service fees on top at whatever arbitrary rate he thinks he can get. In our day, he may be more of a payday lender, preying on the underemployed. He's a money shark who basically prints money for himself. And so, therefore, he's a freewheeler and a big spender. He's loathed by society, but he's never really worried about that because he's a self-made man and the rest of them are suckers. 
But lately, lately there's been a gnawing. It started small in the back of his brain, in the back of his heart, but it has crept forward and, and, and he is realizing that the life that he has been living is not giving him the life he was aiming for. The life he's been living is not giving him the life that he was aiming for. Now maybe he's having a midlife crisis. You know, he's suddenly aware of his own mortality and he's kind of freaking out because the sports car just didn't make him any younger. Maybe he's in trouble of some sort. He picked the wrong person to arbitrarily raise his rates and he has ticked them off. And he's in trouble. Maybe his second wife just left him for the same reason that his first wife left him. Whatever the reason, here he is. He's wandered in. He's not sure why. He doesn't even really remember deciding to come to church this morning, but here he is. He's out of sorts. And everyone else seems to know what's going on in the service, but he can hardly even lift his eyes because now he's in church and he's just face to face with the reality of his life in the light of God's holiness and goodness and purity. It's not unlike the prophet Isaiah, if you remember that passage from Isaiah, when Isaiah came into God's presence and he just hit the deck and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He just was being in the presence of God that suddenly brought his life into stark, unbearable contrast. The Spirit of God has unexpectedly grabbed hold of this man and the contrast between the holiness of God and the moral mess of his own life has just humbled him to the dust. He's beating his chest, mumbling the only prayer that he can think of. Lord, if you're even there, you have mercy on me, a sinner. Both men come to church. Both men take their place in the pews. Both are men of means. Both are praying to God. But Jesus says, only one of them goes away justified. And we saw that word last week. Do you remember if you were here, uh, there was the, the parable we looked at, there's a widow, and she, she goes to this judge who is really unjust. She doesn't care about God or care about what other people think. And he's, um, he, she says, please give me justice against my adversary. She's looking for him to declare her innocent, to declare her righteous. That's the same word, justified and righteous. It's the same word in Greek. And, and we, you know, we don't use that word very often uh, in our everyday talk, the word righteous. But essentially what it is, is it's your resume, right? It's, it's, I mean, if you apply to a, a job or you apply to a school, uh, you send in your resume. And uh, you are doing that to prove that you are worthy of acceptance. Uh, you're sending in your resume to justify that you have done enough to get in. 
And Jesus is saying that only one of these two men have the right resume to get in to God's favor. Even to get into heaven. And shouldn't it be the man here on the front row? The man who's been so involved in the church, who has been so earnest in his prayers and so generous with his finances. But no. It's the hungover money shark in the back pew who hasn't darkened the door of the church in many years. And so we have to ask, well, what, what's the difference? See, the first man, the man in the front row, he's praying his resume. And he has done a lot of really wonderful things, but because of his goodness, he doesn't feel the need for a Savior. He doesn't see that he really needs God's grace. That's for the pitiable. He has become his own Savior. And he's thanking God, but he's patting himself on the back. Whereas the second man, Second man has nothing to offer God but his own need. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This man knows. He is confronted with the reality that he needs a Savior. I learned something this week about uh, this passage. The Greek word that it's used for mercy. Uh, have mercy, Lord, the man says. The Greek word here isn't the usual one that we get, and it just looks the same in English, so you never see it, but like we hear in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what that means typically is that it means that you're not getting something that is bad, but that you deserve. Like judgment. So you're not getting judgment. It's mercy. But this word is, is a different word. It's a rarer word, and it can also be translated propitiation. Now, propitiation, that's an SAT word. But, um, so you may not know, but it, it's, uh, it's a word that means uh, you're to regain favor. Like, for instance, if I uh, do something that may be uh, typical but uh, ugly to my wife Amy, who's there in the back looking beautiful, if I, um, if I do something ugly and she, it hurts her feelings, I may... Uh, go and get her flowers, but I'm not going to Publix. I'm at least going to Hagen, right? And I'm using, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm using my own lunch money uh, that I have, and it's a sacrifice. And she sees that, and it, it makes it smooths everything over. Like it makes it okay because she sees that I've sacrificed, and it's a propitiation. It's a, it's an uh, it's an, a sacrifice to make it okay. Um, hypothetically, that probably never happens, but I. Um, <laughs> You know, as, as Jesus tells this story, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? What does he have this man asking for? He says, is there, is there an offering that could be made for me, Lord? That's what he means. Is there an offering? Is there a sacrifice that could cover me, a sinner? There's no resume in his hand. There's no appeal to his civic works. There's just a prayer for mercy. A plea for a propitiating sacrifice. 
And that's the difference. The man up front has taken his eyes off of God and set his gaze firmly upon himself. And the man in the back is finally taking his eyes off of himself and fixing his gaze for the first time upon God. Is there a sacrifice that could be made for me, a sinner? And isn't it remarkable that just a couple of weeks after Jesus told this story, that on, the, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, on a cross, the prayer of the man in Jesus' story would be answered. Is there a sacrifice? Oh yes. And it is God Himself hanging for you as a propitiating sacrifice. You see, Jesus says that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself before God will be exalted. This man is humbled by the presence of God, asking for grace, asking for mercy. And Jesus says he receives it. And what is the fruit of that humility? What is the fruit of the grace and the humility that this man experiences in this moment? Well, we sort of hope it ends up looking a lot like on the exterior, like the man in the front row. We hope that this grace actually um, uh, helps him to increase his prayer life and, and that he shows up in church a little more regularly. He becomes generous with his finances and rather than greedy for them. But he does so out, always out of a heart of gratitude for mercy rather than as a resume builder. You see, the gospel humbles us to the dust. And at the same time, the very same time, it exalts us to the heavens. You never have to wonder, have I done enough? Because Jesus has done enough. He is the propitiating sacrifice. So friends, it is for you and me to look at these two characters And to wonder, is there a sacrifice for me? Amen.